0: People have a very human-centric view of data. Now, they don't really understand that computers can sift through billions of phone calls or trillions of records. And, and you know this whole needle in a haystack metaphor you know, doesn't work if you can search through you know, all of the hay in, in, in a couple of hours.
1: Today on Radio Berkman, how do you lock an intangible safe? I'm talking, of course, about data security. Think back to nearly 15 years ago when the U.S. passed a bill called the Patriot Act. On the heels of 9-11, the majority of Congress didn't consider the mass collection of information a violation of individual privacy rights. It was a defense measure. But the public opinion about data and privacy has evolved since then. In that time, Edward Snowden told us that the government might know just how often we call our parents. And networks and tools like Facebook and Twitter, which didn't even exist when the Patriot Act was being written, admitted that they were collecting information about our individual interests. By simply logging on to a website or using a phone, we are creating a digital data trail. So it's no surprise that reactions to the Patriot Act have changed. As we are putting this episode together, the Senate passed the USA Freedom Act as an amendment to modify the ways government can monitor their citizens. Data security is a concern for everyone because everyone's information contributes to the immense cloud we call big data. Bruce Schneier is the author of Data and Goliath, The Hidden Battles to Capture Your Data and Control Your World. He recently sat down with Berkman fellow Sarah Watson to talk about how we create regulations that attempt to balance privacy and security.
2: I really loved reading this book and seeing you work through the process of writing this book uh, here as a fellow at the Berkman Center. So I guess maybe the best place to start is the kind of reader takeaway that you are hoping to to get, right? What's the tweet length version of this book? And maybe maybe that's not a fair. Well, fair you question. Mean, the
0: tweet length might be the, the subtitle, The Hidden Battles mm-hmm. to Collect Your Data Control Your World. I mean really what I'm writing about is is a hidden ecosystem of data. That's happening behind the scenes, behind your screens in in the cloud. and most people don't know about it and it's it's becoming increasingly important as a matter of policy as a matter of tech as a matter of who we are as a society and and I wanted to shine a
2: light on it. This book did so well and and you know got New York Times um, bestseller list. And so I'm, I'm encouraged, but I was curious what your thoughts are on, like, what moment we're in that the appetite is there for a much wider audience to kind of start caring about these questions.
0: It's interesting. I think it's because the stories are in the news. I mean, the Snowden stories are in the news. I mean, they faded. I mean, just now the, the techies care and then the government watchers care. But they were very big stories, both in the U.S. and around the world. There's been a lot more stories about Facebook and what Facebook is doing and what they can do. We're seeing just a lot more people noticing what's going on with their data, and people have questions you know some are okay, some are not okay, and it depends on politics you'll You'll hear people complain about corporate data use and be okay with government use, then you'll hear the exact opposite from other people. so I think there is an appetite for knowing what's going on and 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 a lot of the book doesn't break new ground, just summarizes. Here's what's going on. I mean, the first third of the book is, here's what's happening. Corporations, government, your data, here's where it's going, what it's doing. Here are all the things you might not know that are already true, and then here are some extrapolations.
2: Well, and I think the book does a really good job of pulling all those things together. Like, they are headlines, but when you see them in these chapters in the first section of the book, it's like, wow, there is all of that together, and together they make this kind of public-private surveillance uh, partnership that you describe.
0: Well, you need to do that. I mean, if if you're going to get a reader for a whole book, you really have to tell a story. Then, so part two, I I spend time on why this is important because I think there's not a lot of understanding of why this matters. There are pieces of it, but you still hear a lot of, oh, this doesn't matter rhetoric. I think it was important to lay out what's at stake, which is what I I, uh, titled the section. Why is this important? Why should you care? And you pick this book up because... You know you're interested, but here's why you really should care
2: to to get past the "I have nothing to hide" argument, which is still pervasive, right?
0: I mean, it's the "I have nothing yeah. to hide" argument and the security versus privacy argument. There, there, there are some very strong sound bites that might have been true 20, 30 years ago. That older technologies were different, and a lot of what we're saying is: look, the world's different now. People have a very human centric view of data. You know, they don't really understand that. Computers can sift through billions of phone calls or trillions of records. And, and you know, this whole needle in a haystack metaphor you know, doesn't work if you can search through you know, all of the hay in, in, in a couple of hours.
2: And model what the hay looks like. And, and, yeah. And,
0: and, yeah. To a degree, which is really inconceivable to someone who is not seeped in what parallel processing, big data, cloud storage, what these systems can do.
2: And the other piece that kind of comes out of that is the the, the bargains or the trade offs involved in that exchange, right?
0: And that's something that that's not going away. I mean it's not that this data is useless, it's not that it's evil, it's that things are being done with it and, and maybe some of them are good and some of them are bad and we should know about and understand it and then decide.
2: In the um third section of the book you talk a lot about solutions, which I love that a book like this can be so dense but also still get at like okay so what what do we do now Um, but you're also targeting a lot of different audiences so talking to the government solutions talking to the corporate solutions talking to what we can do as individuals and I was curious to hear more about like that's writing for a lot of different people a lot of different audiences
0: in a sense I always try to write for an intelligent reader so it's less proscriptive, here's what you should do, and more descriptive, here's what you should advocate that governments do, here's that you should advocate that corporations do. And this is the techie stuff I deliberately backed off because I didn't want to lose everybody. And, and solutions are hard. And I learned early on, someone told me this, that a book is a combination of so and, and so what, maybe actually you know any sort of nonfiction writing. And so is a lot easier than so what. And most books that I read, nonfiction, most books that I, I've written, are very heavy on the so, and and there's not much so what, and and that is, that's really unfair to the reader and and disappointing to the reader. So I tried very hard to have a very big so what section. Here's what we should do. Here's where we should go. A lot of that is aspirational. A lot of that is clearly totally unrealistic. But you have to put it in there so people have a feeling for. What to do now?
2: Given given that, I'm curious what the most surprising or kind of interesting reaction to some of those solutions has been. Like, what what's surprised you in the reception?
0: Well, I, in reviews, I've been accused of both being too radical and not radical enough. So, so that, <laughs> that 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 was kind of interesting. Uh, you know, critics have have focused on some of the more unrealistic solutions, and and you know that's fair. And I do say in the book that some are unrealistic today. You know, long term 20, 30 years, they might be the norm. You know, we're we're in the battles of of the Reauthorization of the Patriot Act right now, so a lot focuses on on the tactics. And I tried very hard to back off from the tactics simply because they'll be different in three months and, and talk more about general principles and ways we should move rather than. You know, this legislation needs this paragraph to be effective.
2: Mm. Well, and I think that's what I love so much about your approach to the solutions section is that it's not in the nitty-gritty of the policy. It's about, you know, what direction are we trying to go in from, from a top down perspective. So I, I
0: think these discussions are gonna be happening for decades. I mean, my data's not going away, its usefulness isn't going away, its intimacy isn't going away, and we're gonna be making these trade offs again and again. And and my hope is I provided some way to think about it so people can make the trade-offs more intelligently.
2: What's your ideal kind of outcome from this? Like, what does it look like for, you know, is it – it influences somebody to look into, you know, who they're electing? Influence
0: in a lot of ways. I mean, I want it read by policymakers. I want it read by by voters, by consumers, really by all, all of us. Have the ability to influence in, in in some ways, some ways larger than others. Some of us have proxies to influence on behalf of others, elected officials. And I really want what I really want to do is change the way people think. I mean, that's often you know, is I, 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 that is what I find to be the the best compliment I ever get in my writing. You change the way I think. And if I can do that, if I can change the way we think about these issues, to change the way we have this debate, I've done a really important thing. And that's what I try to do in all my writings, and make people think differently.
2: Thank you so much, Bruce, for joining me and also for being a friend and colleague here at the Berkman Center. It's been a pleasure to see you write this book and to be a small, mini part of it. Um, so.
0: Oh, and I thank you for reading it a couple times and, <laughs> and, and having the discussions and, 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 and this. And, and we'll miss you when you're gone. Thanks. Bruce Schneier is the author of Data and Goliath, The Hidden
1: Battles to Capture Your Data and Control Your World. The solution to data security isn't easy to pin down. The ability to exchange information improves commerce, communication, and our daily lives. But when your personal data is stored by someone else, a store that keeps your credit card information, for instance, who is responsible for keeping that information safe? I recently spoke with Josephine Wolf, who studies cybersecurity and internet policy at MIT.
3: What I work on is defense, which is to say sort of the things we do to intervene in cybersecurity incidents and the different ways we do that, whether they're technical, things like firewalls or encryption or password policies, whether they're sort of policy-based, right? Things like the new information sharing policies that we're reading about these past couple weeks. My interest is in how those map out across the entire life cycle of a security incident. So if you look at something like the Sony breach and you say, okay, where does it start? What is the first stage? Where we see something going wrong, and what are all of the different stages those attackers have to get through in order to be successful in their end goal? Along that path, where was every single place we could have put a defensive intervention? Who could have done that, right? Was it Sony for some of them? Was it law enforcement? Was it a totally other third actor, the service provider who was carrying the internet traffic?
1: And Sony's a really good example. That's something that a lot of people might be familiar with because the Sony hack is something that continues to reveal new information as but talk about the sony hack take me back to like take us back to the beginning um and how it happened who was the instigator
3: so far as we know i think the sony hack begins with phishing emails starts with somebody sending an email to a a sony employee probably trying to either elicit credentials or download malware onto their system that would enable them to copy pretty much all of the data Mm That Sony was storing. It seems like all of the emails for their employees, payroll information. What I think is really interesting defensively, what caught my eye about this story more than anything was actually what happened after the information was released, after the attack was made public. And Sony actually tried a couple things. One was they sent a letter to journalists and said, we're going to bring legal action against you if you keep writing about this. The other, more interesting to my mind, was they actually planted fake seeded servers that pretended to have the stolen information so that if you were looking to try and download all of the stolen Sony emails, you might find one of their servers and start a download that wasn't really for anything that would just go on and on and on. And that way they were sort of trying to draw people away from the actual stolen material. I think this is interesting because a lot of what I work on is trying to understand what can you do after the fact in computer security incidents? What can you do after all the credit card numbers are stolen, after all of the emails are stolen from the Sony employees to try and mitigate the harm, right? Because usually when we talk about computer security incidents, we're talking about a harm that's not based in a computer. We're talking about a financial harm. We're talking about a reputational harm. We're talking about maybe a physical harm. And I think I would have said that a case like Sony's, where it seemed like the harm that the attacker had in mind was really reputational public humiliation kind of harm, that's really hard to do, right? Because once they've got the data out of the computer system, what what do you do to stop them? I don't think Sony had it all figured out, right? I think sending letters to journalists in a country like the United States is a pretty empty threat. But I thought it was interesting the ways that they were trying to think through what you could do after the fact in terms of defense. So
1: you're looking at not just technological things people can do to mitigate harm. You're looking at the whole the whole spectrum.
3: Absolutely. And I think we're sort of just beginning to see more of that, because partly because we're seeing more of these big breaches that have people really worried about kind of how to deal with them, but also because people are, I think, coming to terms more with the idea that defense is not just about firewalls and passwords, and that that you can do a lot with that, and that we can do more than we already seem to be doing, but it's really hard to rely on that for everything. On the technological
1: preventative measures. And is that because the, the attackers are always just going to be in like a Cold War sense, advancing one step further than the defensive measures.
3: It's a really interesting question. And I go back and forth on this a lot, right? There's there's a strong line of reasoning that's the attackers always have this advantage. They're always one step ahead. They only have to find one way in. You have to block all of them. There's a small sort of pushback against that. In recent years, there's this idea of the cyber attack kill chain and that you just have to block off one stage of this chain then you can stop it entirely and the attacker has to get through all of these stages. So actually, as the defender, you're at an advantage. And I spend a lot of time sort of thinking about this tension, this contradiction here. I think it's true that if you have really smart, well-resourced, sophisticated adversaries, they're going to be ahead of you a lot of the time. But it's also true that most of the incidents I look at, right, Sony, TJ Maxx, DigiNotar, you're not looking at really sophisticated elaborate technical tools you're looking at things like phishing emails you're looking at things like stolen passwords or guest passwords so i don't i don't think the problem is only that the attackers are really smart i think part of the reason that The technical side is really hard, is that a lot of these technical capabilities are very interchangeable for attackers, right? Because they're Mm -hmm. not after guessing your password. They're after money or espionage or whatever it is that their ultimate harm is. So they don't care whether they have to guess your password, whether they have to send you a phishing email, whether they have to log on to your Wi-Fi. Those, I think, are all totally interchangeable for them. And as you go further along the attack and get closer and closer to the point where they inflict the harm that they want to do, their option's really narrow.
1: How are we creating the mechanisms, the new the new ways of dealing with the aftermath of an attack? And how much is, are we letting that kind of immunity spread out? Like a, a Sony attack, a TJ Maxx attack, like when they experience those attacks, is there is there kind of like a ripple effect through an industry where once TJ Maxx has experienced all of the, their, that credit card breach, that the rest of the industry is watching that and then taking... The steps that they they took to mitigate and applying them.
3: It's a great question. It's hard to know because people are not very forthcoming about what what their security measures are or how they're changing them. Um, so it's 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 easier to say, oh, here's what Target did in the aftermath of its breach" because they publicized that hugely. Harder to know what everybody else did from watching that. There's not a, a required disclosure about any of this stuff. There's some research, mostly survey based, um, that shows that for the most part, companies invest in security after a major breach. Right? It's called the wait and see approach and kind of hope for the best. And then if something terrible happens, you spend money on it. But what I would say about this, because I spend a lot of my time chasing down the details of these incidents, is it's not easy to do, right? People are not forthcoming about the details of their breaches. And if you think about the policy protections, right, we have in many states in this country now data breach notification laws that say if your company collects data about customers in any capacity and that's stolen, you have to tell them. You don't have to tell them anything about how it was stolen, right? So I can know a lot about, you know, who was breached and how many records were stolen. That is totally unhelpful if what I'm trying to do is pin down how exactly that happened and what defenses might have made a difference. So one of my favorite case studies, um, and I think it's a great one, it's a very rare one in that there's actually a long detailed technical report released to the public, is about the Dutch Certificate Authority DigiNotar. And a certificate authority issues digital certificates to, say, websites, so that if you log on to, say, your bank's website, if you ever notice the address bar turns green or it shows a little lock saying, you know, we verified this is really your bank's website, they do that using these digital certificates. So they're a really sort of crucial part of the web infrastructure for helping you trust the sites that you're visiting. And there was the Dutch Certificate Authority that was completely compromised back in 2011, and somebody actually managed to get it and issue fake certificates from it for places like Google, and then carry around certificates that allowed them to prove to browsers that they were actually Google. What I think is really interesting about the story is uh, the, the certificate authority, DigiNotar, which closed after this breach, it was hugely devastating to them, had gone to such pains to defend its operations, right? They had something like 157 firewall rules. They had this set. There were physical security measures like you wouldn't believe. The room where the certificate issuing machines were actually stored had, you know, key card access and thumbprint readers and two sets of doors. One of the things that I think is important about going through these stories is understanding it's not just stupidity, it's not just laziness, it's not just cheapness. This is really hard to do. And so that's that's one example of seeing you know, a very sort of gradual progression through a hugely well-defended system. The other sort of landmark case that I use a lot when I talk about this is the TJ Maxx breach back in 2007, which begins with a couple guys driving along the highway in Miami looking for... Wi-Fi networks that are what's called web encrypted, which is the old Wi-Fi encryption. And then they connect to the Wi-Fi networks of this Marshalls store. They steal credentials. They use those to connect to the main company servers in Framingham. They collect information on those servers which they gradually exfiltrate to servers out in latvia that they themselves own they use that information to try and decrypt some pin numbers to manufacture fraudulent credit cards in asia and eastern europe then they have to get the proceeds from those sales back to the u.s which is where the perpetrators are based so they have to pay people to like carry cash into the country for them There's really hugely elaborate is you what feel, I'm trying you should to, make a movie out of this you should make a movie out of this um <laughs> but but it also i mean what's encouraging to me right is there are all of these opportunities for defending and the, and the tj maxx case i think is actually a sort of optimistic one in that the law enforcement is able to catch these these people bringing money back into the country to to deliver to the people who initiated so the literally
1: attack. there was a physical catch there somebody saw there're actually the a series
3: of them it was, it was a very it's a fascinating brilliant piece of policing um it begins with there's there's an arrest made in Turkey of one of the people who was selling the stolen credit card information. And there's a log on his computer of him communicating with somebody who turned out to be the ringleader. But at the time, they just had his username online and they didn't know who he was. And he was saying, I need you to get me a passport for one of these money carriers who needs to get out of the country. And the carrier was had with him a USB port that had a photo of the guy who was sort of ringleading the whole thing and his address on it that he was using as like insurance in case he got caught. Um, so, so you know, you trace these back through all of these different people. And I think right part of, part of the story for me there is about following the money and trying to make sure that even when somebody's stolen a lot of data, it's hard for them to profit off of it. But part of it is just that this involves such a huge network of people if you're doing it at this grand scale, if you're trying to make millions and millions of dollars off of it.
1: So as a, as a citizen, as a person who interacts with the web and lots of different transactions, when you swipe your credit card, do you actually, as somebody who also researches cybersecurity, do you feel like you're looking at every transaction you make and kind of seeing where the weaknesses are or wondering if
3: there's, there are weaknesses? I think that's really hard to do because we know so little, right? You, you don't have any way of finding out what the stores you shop at do to protect their information. Um, it's it's a tricky area. There are a lot of places that would say, well, if we told you everything we do to protect it, that would just make it easier for the bad guys. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the best argument, but it's certainly true that people have a lot of discretion, a lot of secrecy in this area. I don't think about it a lot as a consumer, partly because I would say one of the places that we're really good at defending or protecting people is individual financial losses. So, right, you think about credit card fraud, you are really well protected from that. You are never going to be the person bearing that loss. Now, there's going to be a whole other sort of set of actors out there fighting over who should be bearing it, but it's not going to be you. It's going to be sort of Visa and MasterCard fighting with TJ Maxx or Target to try and figure out sort of how those how those costs are divided. I think that's less true in other forms of harm, right? we have We have protections for credit card fraud. That's not going to be true if you worked for Sony for 20 years and all of your email is released to the public, right? That's not a kind of harm we know how to protect people from.
1: A lot of people, when they think of cybersecurity, uh, might also be thinking more of the military and of uh, national uh, security and that kind of thing. But I guess those two kind of get conflated a little bit.
3: So there's definitely some some crossover, right? As one of the cases I work with is there's a Mandiant report on the People Liberation Army in China, Unit 61398, and the espionage that they perpetrate against American companies. So that's, for instance, a very tricky one where you say, okay, so this is a national military that's basically targeting private actors. Is that a military incident? Is that a private incident? Uh, there's definitely some confusion there. The other thing that's true is I work on I work with the information that I can find and that's limited when it comes to, you know, matters of national security and, and military incidents.
1: Are so, you, are you envious of that? Would you really like to look into that or is it, is it kind of like a completely different beast? And you're just like
3: um, I'm totally it? fascinated by that. I would love to learn more about it, but that usually comes with a lot of strings attached to learning about classified incidents, right? That's, that's hard to sort of do in an academic context. I think for that, I would really need to be much more immersed in that world and, And not somebody who wanted to sort of write and speak and think publicly about these issues. So, yeah, sometimes I'm envious. And I I mean, I think one of the things that's true about working on computer security incidents is that you always sort of look around and you say every individual company organization has all of this interesting data on what's going on for security. None of them are sharing it for the most part except in these very limited ways that they're required to. So, right, as I said, there are a lot of data breach notification laws, so people often have to report when they have data breaches. No laws in this country about reporting any other kinds of computer security incidents that don't involve the release of personally identifiable information. So, I mean, I think that's already a huge loss. For somebody like me, right, you're working with a set of incidents that are made public because of these very particular policies and restrictions. um, I'm always jealous. I, I mean, again, I sort of come back to wanting to say there are still lots of things we know that you should be doing and that it's very frustrating to see places not doing them. But I think there's also a real visibility problem. In terms of how little is understood about, or maybe not even how little is understood, but how little is made public and shared about the full arc of these incidents, right? I assume that any organization that experiences a major information security breach, I hope, investigates that deeply, you know, learns all of the details that they can, but there's no reason. To make any of that public, that that's just inviting trouble to to a lot of them. So I think that that's a real opportunity for policymakers to try and come in and understand what are the root causes underlying these incidents. Can we actually gather some data around this? That would be valuable.
1: Well, what makes you like? What has made you kind of personally interested in in this field and studying this?
3: Well, my background, my undergraduate degree is actually in math. I used to sort of work on some cryptography research. And so I was interested in the mathematical underpinnings. And I was kind of curious about the ways that people compromise systems that don't involve going after the math. As I would say, sort of where I start from. And this idea that the math is pretty good. If you're going to try and get into a computer system that's not what you're going to go after, right? You know that that's hard to to break. Um, and you, you see this from the NSA tech tactics as well, right? There are a lot of sort of other channels into computer systems. And so I was sort of interested in getting a better feel for what those were and how the mathematical ideas that I sort of raised on interacted with all of those. And then I got really interested in the policy piece and the question of sort of how that influences the ways that technologies are made, the ways that technologies are used. And I mean I think part of what interests me is that my idea of security is much more aligned with policymakers than it is with computer scientists. Computer science has this idea of a secure computer as essentially a, a computer system that does that does not do anything that's not expected. And I think the policy standpoint is much more about harm prevention which is what I've been talking about. And I mean, these are two really radically different ways of thinking about security. One is, you don't want your computer to be used to do something harmful. The other is it's only going to do the things that I've designed and expected to do. And I think that the, the harm mitigation is the one that speaks most to me as the idea of, you know, this is actually more what security is about to my mind, a better or a more useful perspective Yes, a more achievable perspective. Yeah. At we least. know the machine is going to right. do
1: something. Let's just figure out how to keep it from doing the worst thing it could possibly do to us.
3: So I think partly looking at cybersecurity has been for me a journey in trying to get away from a very sort of well-defined, perfect notion of security, which versus looking at a much messier picture where you're really trying to do your best, and you understand it's it's not even going to come close to the perfection you had in the mathematical world. But you're you're very focused on the question of what could go wrong. And how do I try and think about stopping that? Well, Josephine, thank you very much. Thank you so much.
1: Josephine Wolf is a Berkman Fellow and a PhD candidate in the Engineering Systems Division at MIT studying cybersecurity and internet policy. Well, that's about it for this week's episode. For more information about our guests on this episode, visit the show notes at blogs.law.harvard.edu slash media Berkman. This episode of Radio Berkman was produced by me, Daniel Dennis Jones, with Sarah Watson, Elizabeth Gillis, and Gretchen Weber from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts.